Good morning, and welcome to 5 at 8. It's Thursday, December 14th, 2023. And with me here is Linda Carlisle. I'm Mark Overman, and here are the day's top stories. In this episode, we will talk about missile strikes in Kiev injuring dozens of people, the decline in benchmark oil prices, the threat of a lost decade for poor countries due to surging interest rates and limited financing options, the nearing completion of Saudi Arabia's nuclear research reactor, and the recent ruling that Google's App Store is an illegal monopoly. Story number one. Dozens of people have been injured in missile strikes on the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, with 53 people hurt, including six children. Kindergarten and hospital buildings were damaged by debris, as authorities said 10 Russian ballistic missiles had been shot down. The strikes occurred after President Volodymyr Zelensky's plea for Congress to agree on more military aid for Ukraine made little progress. EU leaders will discuss further aid for Ukraine on Thursday, and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said, We must give Ukraine what it needs to be strong today, as reported by the BBC. Did you see the destruction, Linda? Kiev's under fire, literally. It's heart-wrenching to think about how many people, including kids, got injured in those missile strikes. Can you help us understand the strategy behind these attacks? Indeed, it's quite alarming, Mark. Well, the strategy behind such attacks is often twofold. Firstly, it's a show of power, a way for the attacking side to demonstrate its military capabilities and willingness to use them. Secondly, it's a form of psychological warfare, instilling fear and uncertainty in the civilian population and putting pressure on the government. But, uh, that's... it's... I mean, it's utterly inhumane to target civilians. Isn't there, like, any international law against this? International humanitarian law explicitly prohibits attacks on civilian populations. However, enforcement can be challenging, especially in active conflict zones. The key is to hold perpetrators accountable, which is easier said than done. Right, right. And then... There's this whole cyber attack situation. It's like they're being hit from all sides. It's just, um, it's just crazy. Yes, the cyber attack on Ukraine's largest mobile network operator presents a new dimension of warfare. Modern warfare isn't just conducted on the ground or in the air, but also in the digital space. These attacks can disrupt communication, cause panic, and make it harder for people to receive critical updates or warnings. So, in this new age of warfare, what can be done to protect civilians? I mean, they're the ones who suffer the most. Protection of civilians is indeed a priority, Mark. This involves a mix of tactics from enhancing physical security measures and early warning systems to bolstering cybersecurity. On a larger scale, diplomatic efforts to prevent escalation and resolve conflicts are pivotal. Aid and support from the international community can also play a crucial role. Story number two. Benchmark oil prices have reached their lowest levels in almost six months due to concerns about an economic slowdown and weaker energy demand next year, as reported by the Wall Street Journal. The strong supply from the U.S. and Brazil is also contributing to the decline in prices. Analysts believe that the oil market has lost faith in OPEC's ability to balance the market, despite recent production cuts proposed by OPEC and its allies. The reductions are expected to have poor compliance as they are voluntary. In a report from the Wall Street Journal, it is stated that the upcoming release of OPEC's oil market report and the Federal Reserve's policy decision are expected to provide further insights into the situation. I tell you, Linda, the recent drop in oil prices has certainly caught my eye. You know, the last time we saw prices this low was almost half a year ago. 
It's really fascinating how the global economics and energy demand play such a vital role in shaping the oil market. Yes, Mark. It's interesting to see how the fears of an economic slowdown and a potential decrease in energy demand next year are affecting the market more than attempts by big oil producers to stabilize prices. And then, there's the factor of strong supply from the US and Brazil. It's like a game of chess, with each move influencing the next. That's a great analogy, Linda. It's like OPEX making their move with new production cuts, trying to balance the oil market. But it's almost like the market's lost faith in their strategy. It's just a tough call for them, given that these cuts are voluntary and compliance might not be as high as they'd like. True, Mark. It seems to be a crisis of confidence. The market is skeptical about OPEC's ability to create balance, especially as we see countries like Russia, a part of the broader OPEC plus alliance, making their own moves. It's also worth noting the impact of inflation in this scenario. With inflation stabilizing but still above pre-pandemic levels, it's influencing the Federal Reserve's policy decisions and feeding into the fears of an economic slowdown. Exactly. It's like the domino effect. One thing leads to another. The inflation factor is critical since it's tempering hopes for near-term Federal Reserve rate cuts. And this, in turn, is adding to the expectation of a demand-sapping economic slowdown. It's all interconnected. It's a complex web of events and decisions. It's not just about the oil market, but the global economy, international relations, and the politics of oil. The outcomes and complications can be far-reaching. This situation echoes historical instances where similar economic scenarios unfolded. And it's fascinating to see how we navigate these challenges now. It's a testament to the constantly evolving nature of our world. Story number three. Surging interest rates and limited financing options are posing a significant threat to poor countries, potentially leading to a lost decade for their economies. The World Bank, as reported by the New York Times, has warned that the world's poorest nations are burdened with record levels of debt, making it difficult to invest in essential sectors such as public health, education, and infrastructure. In 2022 alone, Low- and middle-income countries paid a historic $443.5 billion in principal and interest, a 5% increase from the previous year. The World Bank, as stated by the New York Times, projects that this figure will rise by nearly 40% in 2023 and 2024. More than half of low-income countries are currently facing debt distress, prompting calls for debt restructuring to avoid prolonged economic setbacks. Variable interest rates and the stronger U.S. dollar have further exacerbated the debt crisis for these countries. The situation has made it challenging for them to attract new investments and financing, with new loan commitments declining by 23% in 2021. Governments defaulting on their debts has become increasingly common, surpassing the total number of defaults in the previous two decades. The mounting debt burdens have put pressure on multilateral development institutions like the World Bank, as reported by the New York Times, to provide low-cost loans, while international efforts to accelerate debt relief have been slow-moving. China, the world's largest creditor, has faced criticism for impeding debt restructuring agreements due to its reluctance to accept losses on its loans. The global economic slowdown and high debt burdens in rich countries further complicate relief for developing economies. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen, as stated by the New York Times, emphasized the importance of debt relief and cooperation between the U.S. and China to address the issue. I gotta say, Linda, this news is a real wake-up call. 
The World Bank's latest report shows that the debt crisis facing the world's poorest countries is reaching unprecedented levels. We're talking about a record $443.5 billion paid toward principal and interest just in 2022, a 5% increase from the previous year. And it's not slowing down. They're projecting almost a 40% rise in 2023 and 2024. It's a grim picture, no doubt about it. It certainly is, Mark. Not only are these countries dealing with the economic burden of this debt, but the high interest rates are also complicating crucial investments in areas like public health, education, and infrastructure. These are all key factors in helping these populations rise above poverty. It's a vicious cycle, and it's hard to see how these countries can escape from it without some sort of intervention. Absolutely. It's a reminder of past global economic crises, like the Latin American debt crisis in the 80s or the Asian financial crisis in 97. Back then, countries were borrowing excessively, and when the bubble burst, the repercussions were felt globally. And it seems we didn't learn from those lessons. The World Bank has even used the term lost decade to describe the situation. It's a reference to Latin America's lost decade in the 1980s, when economic stagnation led to a decade of economic misery. And it brings us to the role of the major players, the World Bank, China, and the U.S. It's interesting to note that China, as the world's largest creditor, has been criticized for being an obstacle to debt restructuring agreements due to its reluctance to assume losses on its loans. We've seen this in the case of Zambia, where despite an agreement in principle to restructure $4 billion in debt, the deal has been stalled due to objections from some of China's creditors. Yeah, and that's where we need to see more cooperation, right? Like Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said, debt relief is one of the most crucial issues the U.S. and China need to work together to address. We can't let the world's poorest nations carry this burden alone. It's not just about the economic impact, it's a humanitarian issue too. And this is where empathy and compassion come into play. These unsustainable debt burdens are causing real suffering, and it's critical for wealthier nations and international financial institutions to step in and help restructure these debts. We need to move beyond the rhetoric and take concrete actions to prevent another lost decade. Story number four. Saudi Arabia's nuclear research reactor is nearing completion, with Argentine company Invap having finished the fuel and preparing to ship it to Saudi Arabia, as reported by Reuters. The International Atomic Energy Association, IIEEA, is in discussions with Riyadh regarding necessary inspections. The head of the IAEA, Rafael Mariano Grossi, stated that regulatory aspects need to be addressed, including the signing of a comprehensive safeguards agreement. The Saudi energy minister has previously announced that the kingdom will transition from light-touch oversight to full-blown safeguards for its nuclear activities. The IAEA is providing advice to Saudi Arabia on inspection requirements for sensitive technologies. Would you look at that, Linda? Saudi Arabia's nuclear research reactor is almost complete. That's quite the stride for a nation with ambitions to expand its nuclear program. But I wonder, what sort of implications might this have on an international level? Mmm, it's certainly a significant development, Mark. On an international level, the arrival of another player on the nuclear scene could potentially alter the balance of power, especially in a region as delicate as the Middle East. It's also likely to spark concerns about nuclear proliferation. Right. Given the geopolitical tensions in the region, particularly with Iran, this could be a game-changer. But then, 
isn't it also a matter of a nation's right to explore and harness nuclear energy for its development? Seems like a tricky tightrope to walk. The concept of nuclear sovereignty, the right of a nation to develop nuclear energy for peaceful purposes, is a contentious issue. However, it becomes problematic when there's a potential for the development of nuclear weapons. That's why international agencies like the International Atomic Energy Association exist, to provide oversight and ensure the peaceful use of nuclear technology. I get that, Linda. But Saudi's decision to end light-touch oversight and switch to full-blown safeguards, is that a step in the right direction? Well, it's a move in a promising direction, Mark. It shows a commitment to transparency and adherence to international norms. But it's also a question of trust. The international community will be closely watching to ensure these safeguards are properly implemented. I suppose that's where the International Atomic Energy Association's role becomes crucial, eh? But hold on. Wasn't there a similar situation with Iran's nuclear program? And look where we are now. Yes, Mark, you're right. The Iran nuclear deal, or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was an attempt to limit Iran's nuclear capabilities and ensure it was for peaceful purposes. But the situation with Saudi Arabia is different. It's a nascent nuclear program, and the international community has the opportunity to guide its development from the onset. This could be a chance to learn from past experiences and perhaps do things differently. Interesting points, Linda. Seems like we're in for an intriguing period in the world of nuclear power and international diplomacy. Can't wait to see how this pans out. The dynamics between national ambitions and global security concerns will be something to watch. It's a complex issue, but that's what makes it so fascinating. Story number five. A jury has ruled that Google's App Store is an illegal monopoly, potentially setting a precedent for challenges against other big tech companies. As reported by Washington Post, the decision came after Epic Games lost a similar case against Apple. Antitrust scholars and lawyers believe that the jury's ruling in favor of Epic Games against Google could encourage more plaintiffs to pursue jury trials against big tech. Jury trials give challengers the opportunity to present their case to everyday consumers, who may have a better understanding of market power. The decision may also have implications for Google's upcoming antitrust case with the Justice Department over its digital advertising business. In a separate development, Apple has offered rivals access to its tap-and-go mobile payment systems to avoid an antitrust action from European Union competition enforcers. Meanwhile, a federal oversight report states that U.S. government agencies are falling behind on policies that would allow them to responsibly acquire and rely on AI systems. American support for banning TikTok has significantly decreased this year, even among Republicans, according to a survey by Pew Research Center. I gotta say, Linda, this Google verdict has got me thinking. It's a bold move for a jury to call a tech giant like Google a monopoly. But it's not entirely out of the blue, is it? Big tech has been under the microscope for quite some time now, and there's been a lot of chatter about their dominance in the market. Plus, it's a different ballgame with a jury involved. It's not just about the intricate details of competition policy. It's about what everyday consumers feel about these companies. That's true, Mark. But let's not forget that jury trials are a double-edged sword. Yes, they bring in the perspective of average consumers, but they also introduce a degree of unpredictability. As Professor Weinstein pointed out, there's a lot more variation and uncertainty with a jury. Remember, Epic Games lost its case against Apple in a federal court, but won against Google with a jury trial.
Sure, Linda, but I think this is a clear signal that big tech can't take things for granted anymore. And you know what? That's a good thing. A little shake-up. A little uncertainty. Keeps them on their toes, don't you think? Besides, this could pave the way for more transparency in how they operate. Well, Mark, transparency is one thing, but let's not overlook the potential repercussions. While we advocate for competition, we also need to consider the potential impact on innovation. Big tech companies like Google have been at the forefront of technological advancements. If they're constantly under the threat of antitrust lawsuits, could that hamper their ability to innovate? Hmm. I see where you're coming from, Linda. But I believe competition breeds innovation. If these giants know they can't rest on their laurels, they'll have to work harder, innovate more. And in the end, that's good for us, the consumers, isn't it? It's a nuanced issue, Mark. As with most things, striking a balance is key. We need competition, but we also need to ensure that we're not stifling innovation in the process. It'll be interesting to see how this pans out in the coming years. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.